Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton, and in this podcast I'll discuss the issue of religion and discuss the extent of salvation, and really that's not the point here. That is, if we go through the three common approaches to world religion, uh, pluralist, inclusivist, exclusivist, I think none of them get at the uh, biblical picture, which we might call the practical understanding. But to get to the practical understanding, I think we have to look and discuss then these other issues, uh, for example, with the idea of a pluralist understanding. John Hick may be the most prominent representative of the pluralist school, and he says we must accept that our own tradition is not the center around which all reality resolves. Rather, we must see the center as being the ultimate reality itself, fully perceived, he says, by no single tradition, though the traditions revolve around this center. And while there may be an element here in Hick that one would want to acknowledge that certainly no tradition or no religion or no understanding uh, contains all reality, and I don't know that any one religion, certainly Christianity, would not claim that, but there is a kind of, uh, he sneaks in a kind of idea here, and that is that any religion is in, in itself then inadequate by itself, that it's perceived that in some way it falls short of the ultimate reality. So he would say that God has many names and all religious traditions affirm some transcendent and benign reality, and that is their common core, but they approach it in very different ways. And so he'll talk about a non-absolute over against an absolute understanding Uh, He'll talk about Trinity, but he'll refer to Trinity as a kind of myth. As with any pluralist or any good modern anthropologist, he will deny the value, even though he says that every tradition has its value. And of course, what all of these groups will deny is that the Mesoamerican cults, that the Aztecs or various others, uh, in their human sacrifice, that they were inherently valuable. And so there is, they're drawing lines here that they themselves do not really allow for. So Hick says that religious traditions are more or less true to the extent that they help human beings to overcome self-centeredness and to become open to love of others and to love others. And so in this he says the major traditions are more or less equal in producing saintliness, uh, producing extraordinary men and women whose spirit and lives make God more real to the rest of us. We'll come back to Hicks' understanding, but of course here the many have noted that what he's actually doing is suggesting that it's a kind of flattening out. And it's, uh, as uh, Leslie Newbegin will describe it, what the pluralist will do is what the Buddhist Lord does, that he describes the five blind men and the elephant. And of course, each of the blind men have part of the elephant, one the tail, he says it's like a rope, and the trunk is like a snake, and the legs are like a tree trunk, etc. And Newbegin's point is, yes, but uh, the 
one telling the story presumes that he's not blind, but the re blind men as representative of the religious traditions are all blind. And so there's a certain arrogance in the pluralist understanding that presumes that the, you know, this is the typical modernist idea that one can stand outside of his own religious tradition or his own culture and make pronouncements then about other cultures or just flattens them out. The other would be inclusivism, maybe Paul Tillich, Karl Rahner. Tillich, you know, describes God as the ground of being and that everybody has access to being. So this is kind of the prime onto theology. Karl Rahner will talk about anonymous Christians, that is, that people that are practicing the love or the forgiveness, the teachings of Jesus, but they may not know it and other people may not know it. Ernst Trelch is in this group. He would describe the absolute as lying beyond history and is a truth that in many respects remains veiled. And so we can think here of Mercia Eliade that the similar idea of a kind of sui generis understanding that I think both the pluralist and the inclusivist uh, tend to think of religion then of a, in a kind of romantic view that religion as such, religion per se is a human good and human religions all point to or historical religions all point to and partake of the same reality and they're all alternate variations on a theme uh, or complementary paintings of a single landscape. And on this view then, religion is not demonic or tied with falsehood, but is just a uh, manifestation of human aspiration. And so the religions are not to be discarded as false, though they may certainly be ranked in order of value or a comprehensiveness or finality. And most advocates of the Romantic view being Christian, unsurprisingly named Christianity in the past, the, the final religion. And so maybe Schleiermacher, Hegel, Lessing, Kant, maybe the liberal theologians of today then are inclusiveness of this sort. Hans Kuhn described, you know, that outside the Catholic Church there is a salvation, and outside every church he says that all people of goodwill can attain salvation in their own religions, and these may be called anonymous. Christians. This is the available light understanding that according to the light which is available to them, they achieve Christian salvation, that is, they achieve it by other means. And the, often people will refer to the Logos of John, not an anti-Gnostic, but a kind of proto-Gnostic understanding, this is certainly true, of Tillich and Rahner that uh, it seems the Logos of, that is describing Christ depends upon a kind of general Logos in terms of a Greek philosophical concept rather than the specificity of the terms of the historical Jesus. And of course, the, I think there is a misunderstanding here, a misreading, a, a peculiarly modernist misreading in which uh, a kind of flat rationalism is uh, equated then with the word, and of course, if you're going to understand the John's picture of the Logos, that you probably need to go back not to a Greek etymology of the word, but back to Dabar, or the Hebrew word for word, and that is a very different understanding. 
it is a you know the mighty speech acts of God. It's specifically tied to the work of uh, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so when John says that in the beginning, he's making a reference to this God in this beginning as described in the Hebrew Bible. Exclusivism, maybe Peter Berger captured the modern attitude toward exclusivism. He says exclusivism has become a relatively rare stance, at least in academically respectable circles in Western countries, though it continues vigorously among academically unaccredited conservative Protestants and Catholics. But I would actually count Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer as exclusivists, that Barth especially had a very a distinctive view of the peculiarities of the exclusion, the exclusive nature and specific nature and necessity of the religion of Christ. In this, all religion, including Christianity as a religion, is to be identified with the story of the Tower of Babel, a human attempt to climb Godward as such. All religion is guilty of arrogant pride and is condemned by the gospel. Not in the religions, said this approach, not even in Christianity as a religion, but only in the gospel has God spoken of a truly humane and saving word. And so this is something of a reaction to the romantic understanding. This ties into an early Christian view. It saw pagan religions as demonic and belief in the pagan gods as a result of a demonic influence. So the many religions, you know, according to Tertullian, would be the result of Satan's work. In this, the ancient view is not really forgotten, uh, but it passed into the 18th century European Enlightenment, which taught that all religions are in some way primitive and rooted in error and confusion, and that as men of the Enlightenment, then we can pass this judgment. Of course, Christianity was false along with all the rest. Though some deists considered any religious elements in the world religions that lined up with deism, that, that is, that God created the world, established immutable laws, and is judged that in some way these religions are the legitimate religions. There is a kind of uh, shared understanding that I think misses. We've gone clear through these theories, and I think this is the problem with the theorists without really defining our terms. Uh, you know, what do we mean when we say salvation, and what is it that people are included, excluded into? And so the religion as a practical theory is the idea here is if you understand, you know, we haven't really even defined religion. And we often think of religion as a entity apart from culture or something, you know, it's a belief system. I think that is a, a fallacy to all these understandings because religion is usually just a set of powerful practices that embody the life-forming convictions of its practitioners in japan you know that the practitioners of the religion don't particularly that belief is not open for discussion it's not even required that you believe the religion what's required and i think this is common with pagan religion with primitive or world religions is that the practice of the religion is the thing that uh, the, the life-forming essence and so in, in this understanding once you meld religion you understand religion is not an entity unto itself it's not really separate from the culture uh, it's not 
either all with the demons or all more or less evil, that there's no essence of religions, that you have to look at any particular belief system. Generalizations about religion are really generally mistaken since religions differ in kind, and only concrete, sympathetic, historical, and empirical study can tell us about any particular religion or any particular culture. In other words, that Religion is dynamic, it unfolds, and with culture it evolves, it changes. And so one of the things that is often posited in religious studies is a kind of static understanding. And so in this practical theory, there is the sense that there is a concern with the life-shaping practices that religions embody, and to get at those practices, the religion cannot be abstracted from the culture. It can't simply be identified with the abstract teachings, nor can you simply identify it with their errors, because what you often find, you know, in the case of Buddhism, for example, that Buddhism is something very different in the various countries that have taken up Buddhism, and it very often has very little to do with the Buddha that, and his teaching, but as often as in Japan, it may be melded with ancestor worship or funerals. And it is not so much the belief of the religion, but the way in which the religion is integrated into the culture. And so by the practical theory of religion, any doctrine discloses its meaning only within the practices and convictions of the community that embraces it. And a work example, of course, should be Christianity, the Christian doctrine of salvation, that what we call, Christians call salvation, It certainly is not the same thing as what Hindus call moksha. It's not simply what the Buddhists call nirvana. That is that we might just lump all these together and say, well, this is salvation. Yeah, but the the word is tied to a very specific content that moksha, it talks about a deliverance from maya. Nirvana is a kind of release And so the the contents of religion arise from a particular context, and this then gives meaning to the the words that we're using. And so to, in some way, talk about religion uh, on some grand scale, as if we can lump these together, does an injustice to the religions and their particular meaning. And so salvation in Christian terms is not just any experience of success or religious attainment, but is having a share in the liberation and healing associated with the rule of God that Jesus proclaimed. That is, that salvation is a very specific thing, and especially as we enter into the New Testament. And so salvation is exactly the success that comes with faith, and faith then means a very particular thing that one shares the practices and convictions of this new rule, which actually to outsiders may seem more like failure than success, because crucifixion and death and taking up a cross uh, is an odd form of success by any other measure. So Christian practices, including taking up the cross, living one's life in the presence of the risen Jesus, Uh, When you talk about salvation, then, it uh, has a very particular understanding in the salvation of non-Christians or of misnamed Christians, anonymous Christians, apart from taking that cross, apart from living in that present, apart from 
that community or acknowledging that divinity is not as some have supposed, you know, this is James McClendon, it doesn't give it a wider meaning, it is to empty it of its real meaning. And so he says, talk of Christian salvation without Christian practices and Christian convictions is like talk of a fire that consumes no oxygen and releases no heat. It's like talk of a society that has no members and remembers no history. And so the mission of the church is not about a vague need for all people to be better or for all people to go to heaven. Salvation for all means there are no exclusive limits. Kingdom membership is open, it's universal. But to be the glad recipient of salvation, as it describes it in Acts 17.11, is to become a member of a community of persons living out their lives under the reign of Christ, walking as Christ did in these practices, this walk, this righteousness, is the practice of salvation. So the very meaning of the word salvation in Christian use turns upon the shared life and practices Christians take up when they come to Christ. Thus, the practical theory here, practical understanding. You can make uh, similar points about all of the vocabulary and take, you know, judgment, condemnation, damnation, that on the practical theory of religion, the, the meaning and application of these is determined in relation to the community. It follows that they have no application outside the bounds of that community. And so this is Bart's point about those in the New Testament who stand in risk of judgment in hell. They are not some unknown pagans, but in fact these are nominally God's own people. They are people within the hearing of Jesus' gospel. The gospel or the New Testament never has anything to say about these unnamed or anonymous or distant pagans. And of course, I think here is uh, including a misunderstanding of Paul's picture in Romans 1.18 that it has nothing to do with available light, a subject for another time. And so the plight of non-Christians is profoundly expressed by saying, yes, they need Jesus. But the sense in which they need Jesus is not some vague going to heaven when you die, but it's specifically aimed at the circumstance which binds them. And so the motivation for mission does not rest on the unanswerable question of the status before God, you know, what are these people all going to hell or heaven? That's not the question, but is on the far more immediate question of the Christian disciples' status. That is, that mission uh, has in some way taken on a kind of arbitrary or even a secondary role that if we put mission front and center, that the going is not oh, we're delivering something that we own or we've obtained or that we have and giving it, rather that mission is part of then the apprehension, the understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The questioning of the category religion, I think that we need to tie it in with socio-religious, uh, religio-cultural practices 
And this then gets at the lived reality of any particular religion. We can't reduce religion down to some sort of sui generis thing. This is the failure, I think, of the study of religions in Mircea Eliade's picture of modern study of religion. Now, it's not clear how Karl Barth might react to this in that it is a very exclusive system, exclusive system. But I think it's really exclusive in exactly the way he imagined it. The Bible is not concerned with religion per se. Paul can take it and use it when it fits his purposes. This is on the hill of the Areopagus. He'll refer to the unknown God, the idol that represents this unknown God. And so the word religion and even the word idolatry actually turn out to be very different. That idolatry in Paul's use turns out to be a larger category than religion. So that when Paul talks about love of money or human desire, per se, he's talking about idolatry. And this may or may not tie in to, if you think of James' use of good and true religion as he's describing the practices that one takes up. So this is a brief introduction then to the, I think, the failure of the modern school of religions defined as a sui generis sort of thing. And of course, the problem with all of this is that I, I think that we've too quickly imagined that we can apprehend what religion is. In this understanding, it's uh, as it should be with Christianity, I think this is the prime misunderstanding, is that we imagine that faith or belief of Christianity is apart from the practices of the religion. There should be no distance between the belief and the practice. Those are integrated. It's one move. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.